Good afternoon, everybody. This is Michael Collazo, CEO of OpenSea Direct. Uh, we welcome all of you to the OpenSea Direct podcast, the podcast for and by event organizers, of course, presented by OpenSea Direct. We help event organizers sell tickets easily, get paid instantly, and eliminate junk fees. Go to OpenSeatDirect.com and sign up for free or use promo code OSD20 and save 20 bucks at checkout. It is a pleasure to have someone I've known over the years, um, the wonderful founder of the Walker International Communications Group, and really a, a great boutique company that specializes in marketing, press, and audience development, particularly for things like Broadway and the performing arts. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating industry. It's one that, just like every other live event industry, had its roller coaster ride with uh, COVID and a growing diverse population in the U.S. So Donna is certainly an expert in all of it. And it is a pleasure to have Donna Walker Kuhn on the podcast. Hello, Donna. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Great to see you. Yeah, likewise. It's been a minute. Um, and, you know, COVID does that to you sometimes. It's, you know, oh, less time to connect with people in person, right? Yeah, it's crazy. It's true. Yeah. So uh, we always like to start off with simply, you know, where you're from. Let's hear about where you're from and how you started, oh, sure. um, you know, finding interest in the industry. Uh, so I am. Uh, I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois, on the south side. Uh, my parents uh, were part of the great migration from the south uh, to the north. And we lived in a very um, closed black community that was very safe uh, mm -hmm. and fun. I think of my childhood, it was nothing but just great memories. Uh, and <clears throat> when we were five years old, I have a twin sister. When I was five years old, my oh. mom took us to see the Bolshoi Ballet in uh, downtown Chicago. And I was just mesmerized. I saw Maya Pleskaskaya, who was then the reigning ballerina in the world, uh, performing Swan Lake. And I just said, Mom, that's what I want to do. I'm going to be a ballerina. So she said, OK, well, let's just start with some classes. So yeah. she enrolled us in the local YWCA, started taking uh, ballet classes, and decided I liked it. And then we moved up to a dance studio Mayfair Dance Academy. And there we started taking African dance classes. And my older sister was taking classes there as well. And then the, uh, the instructor invited all of us to join a dance company that he was creating. And so by the age of 13, 14, we were performing regularly and oh, wow. rehearsing and teaching. And so that continued all through high school, uh, college, and then uh, graduated you know, from Loyola University and had already planned to go to law school because I didn't know any dancers that really had a solid paycheck as a dancer. So I knew yeah, I needed right. a cool. And so I started at Howard University Law School and I took ballet classes every morning at 7 a.m. And I choreographed a couple of pieces for Georgetown Law School and performed in the talent show. So I always kept dancing. I never stopped. So when I graduated from law school and got married and moved to New York, I thought, well, wait, how do I put all of this together? You know, I love the law. I definitely love the performing arts. How do you build a career oh, with that? You know, you have to separate. Right. So I started prosecuting juveniles in family court in Brooklyn. Um, 
when I moved to New York. And <clears throat> I knew that the work was important, but I didn't see the value of it. Because at that time, the Family Court Act required, uh, you know, it was for juveniles under the age of 16, they would just be sent upstate to Spofford, which was a secure detention center, which is where all mm -hmm. their friends were. So it was more like a reunion than actually trying to rehabilitate. So I began right, to right. question my, my purpose there. And at the same time, a colleague told me about a performing arts center that was across the street from Family Court. It was called the Thelma Hill Performing Arts Center. So I went over there on my lunch hour and I just saw my future in front of me. I mean, there was papers everywhere. And Larry Phillips, executive director, is a great producer, maybe not so organized. So I said, why don't I come over and just organize your files? He said, great. So my lunch hour was spent just putting the office kind of in order, but then I started to read um, the papers and I saw this was a press release. I said, oh, this is what a touring schedule looks like. Oh, this is a proposal, I bet I can do that. So basically I taught myself how to become an arts administrator on my lunch hour while I was prosecuting juveniles in family court. So that, get that. going for about an, a year. And of course the judges were looking for counsel Walker because I'm across the street. My lunch hour was now until four o'clock. I was having a great time. So then yeah. I realized I needed to make a clean transition. So I resigned from family court. I wrote a proposal to pay myself a salary as the managing director of the Thelma Hill Performing Arts Center. So I created oh, wow. this myself. And from right. there, I knew I wanted to stay with dance. And I wrote a letter to Arthur Mitchell, who was then the artistic director of the Dance Theater of Harlem. And, you know, he, the day my letter arrived, their marketing director had resigned. It was three oh, wow. weeks before their New York season and ticket sales were not so strong. So he called me, this is before cell phones and all of that. He called me and said, you know, I received your letter and <clears throat> can you sell tickets? I said, yes. So that began my formal career as an arts administrator at the Dance Theater of Harlem. That was in 1984. Oh, wow. And from that time on, you know, Mr. Mitchell asked me to be his first assistant. So I was able to travel around the world with the company and really see how audiences responded to the company based on geography. You know, what's the difference in Europe, South America, than Kansas City, uh, LA? Um, and so we started to notice in the United States, particularly in the urban cities, that there was very few black people in the audience. And so I asked the presenters, I said, what are you doing to, to bring in the black community? And they would say, well, we don't really know what to do. We, we want them, we just don't know what to do. And right. so I looked at the model that Cleveland had used uh, <clears throat> where they put together an audience development task force. And so I used that as a model and started to create that in every city we toured in. So that once I got the tour schedule, I would call the presenter, schedule a time for me to come out, build the audience development task force based on community leaders, faith-based educators, parents, mm -hmm. um, give them a strategy, give them goals, and rewards. And then, you know, they would start to market the company and I would tell them, without you, we will not be able to engage uh, the black community. So we need you. And that gave a sense of purpose, something they hadn't been given before. Mm -hmm. And so that became very successful. We increased our revenue by 45%, you know, with this model. And we, of course, used it in New York as well. So for nine years, I was able to travel and implement uh, the answer to that question, where are the black people, through right. audience development. Uh, did it for BAM, 
Lincoln Center, as well as, you know, around the world. <clears throat> and then uh, 1993, George C. Wolfe uh, called me and he said, I heard about your work. And uh, I've been here at the public theater for three months and I've noticed the audiences are predominantly white. I'd like this place to look like a subway stop. How would you do it? And so he said, come in. So I came in and just, I just started dreaming out loud because at that point, I'm like, George C. Wolf calling me? I mean, there's no way I'll be able to work with George. I mean, how does he even know about me at this point? Yeah. He's won Tony Awards. He's head of the public theater. He's, you know, creating right. all these magnificent pieces, color museum, all of that. But he, um, he, we talked. And then the a week later, he called and said, when would you like to start? What would you like to name the new department? And how many staff do you need? So I thought I was really dreaming. But I wasn't. And so it was hard to leave dance theater. I loved dance theater and working with No, and I, Yeah, and ever since I've known you, that's certainly your, your labor love, certainly. Um, exactly. We actually, and then we actually interacted first precisely with some of your basically community outreach, you know, uh, uh, yeah. work because uh, at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, which you still have a connection mm -hmm. with, um, mm -hmm. you had de developed with your staff um, folks looking to connect to the Latino community based on, yes. um, um, you know, uh, artists and other performances that were coming through the building. Um, so it, it seems like certainly that model has sort of been replicated and been successful everywhere you've yeah. gone. Right? Yeah. And in public theater, uh, people would know, obviously, extremely famous, you know, productions of today would come through um, a, a place like public theater and, you know, from that go right beyond into Broadway and, and, and all of that. And exactly. so with public theater, yeah, you started in the mid-90s there. And then when did you start Walker International uh, Communications? Um, well, actually, I had been consulting the, the whole time since oh, okay. I got out of law school. But formally, the company was incorporated in 2002. Oh, OK. Great. So it's been Great. 21 years formally, but 40, 40 years in the uh, and so, yes, wow. after, you know, I was at the public for nine years and did Broadway and all kinds of wonderful things, um, I decided I wanted to do my own uh, consulting because I had become a parent and I wanted to have more time. Uh, so my first yeah. four clients were Hairspray, Guilty Jones, Alvin Ailey, uh, My Wendy's Black Bottom. And from there, it's continued to grow and build very quickly. And um, I worked then right. at the Apollo Theater. I was the interim marketing director there for two years. And it was while I was there, I worked on the production of Harlem Song, which George wrote and directed. And John Schreiber and Dave Rodriguez were the producers. And mm. <clears throat> 10 years later, in 2012, John Schreiber called me and asked me, you know, did I have some time where I could be the interim vice president of marketing at New Jersey Performing Rights Center? Mm -hmm. And so I said, sure, three months, two days a week. Yeah, that'd be fine. After the first month, he asked me would I take the position uh, full-time as VP. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that because I have a company with seven staff and payroll and contracts. He said, yeah. I don't either, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and, so right. did. and that's when we start, I started you know, working with you and other group sales agents. Because group sales have definitely been a strength of mine. I know how to build okay. and sustain that. But also being able to really find out what do diverse audiences need? What is the bridge for them to leave right. their home and come to your home? So that I was able to really put together and replicate it in JPAT. And also Newark, 
was so exciting to me because I knew nothing about Newark. I didn't know anyone in Newark, but I had done so much work in Harlem. I knew the, the similarities of the yeah, culture yeah. community. So I knew that I could build um, a successful campaign in Newark. So that's how I got no, and to and along, Yeah, and so along the lines of the work you've been doing, I'm curious, I mean, you know, start <clears throat> certainly, uh, you know, been in the business so, you know, for, for a while and know it quite well. And I'm curious first, um, just sort of the obvious and not so obvious differences between what the uh, performing arts world, particularly, I guess, in New York City and other markets uh, and what how they were engaging with with audiences and how that's changed today and what sort of worked of the work you were doing. You had mentioned, you know, getting uh, community leaders together to kind of help cultivate mm -hmm. other audiences. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, uh, uh, an sure. overview of how much you think it, some of it has changed and some of it hasn't over the years that you've been doing this? Well, there's definitely a distinction between nonprofits and Broadway. You know, the commercial world uh, is designed to make money. Right. They put up a production, it runs on how long it can, and it closes down. So if you talk about building relationships, uh, it's very time sensitive because it's only going to last as long as the show. Everything right. goes away after the show closes down. With the nonprofit, you're mission-based. So now you are working with the community. So regardless of whatever the show is, whatever the run is, what is sustainable is the relationship. So I find right. that the nonprofit sector, there's time to build long-term relationships where people follow you wherever you go. They're going to come back. They'll come next year. They'll come in six months. But on Broadway, the producer may not hire your company. So you don't even have contact with the production to bring your audiences, you know. So there's nothing guaranteed in the commercial yeah. world. Right, Not right, right. It's you've got your footprint solid and strong in the community. No, I don't no, think that makes changed. sense. Yeah, it, it hasn't really changed. And what has had an impact is the murder of George Floyd. That definitely really? has impacted the commercial industry more than the nonprofit, in my experience. Uh, because of the formation of so many advocacy groups that came out of that, that horrible experience. So these advocacy groups like Black United Fund, Black Theater United, I mean, there's so many of them. And what they um, were demanding is equity and inclusion in the commercial field, on stage and behind the scenes. That had never been discussed. So now mm -hmm. these groups were saying, you know, we want the same treatment. We want the same kind of contracts. We want to be considered for these roles, and we need more than one play of color per season. Direct result. You saw the season that we came back out of the pandemic had seven plays by Black playwrights. Unprecedented. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely a direct result of the advocacy of those groups. So I deeply appreciate um, their consciousness uh, and their um, efforts to make sure that they were seated at the table to have these conversations. It also includes the unions, which is very challenging uh, because we mm, know right. that unions are very familial. Everything passes down through the family. And very very legacy driven, right? Yeah, like colleges, right? Like yeah. people, you know, what's in the news today with Harvard University admissions and the like, but unions have a very similar legacy dynamic too. Yeah. yeah. And then you have the Broadway League. They hired their first diversity officer you know, who has been extremely active in making sure there's representation on every level. So I do feel there is movement in the commercial industry um, as a direct result of George Floyd. 
think the nonprofits were always trying to move in that direction, um, but this also gave them a push. So for instance, at NJPAC, we talked about it extensively. You know, what are we going to do as the state's anchor institution? How are we mm -hmm. going to reflect our consciousness after this incident? And we decided that we would launch our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, which I lead at NJPAC. And so that's our social justice programs that we present every single month now for the past three years. We have presented a film and a panel discussion on the social justice topic that affects black and brown and LGBTQ people. Um, and that's, you know, all been on Zoom. So we've been able to share it worldwide and really be able to have an impact, we think, in educating people about not just to know about it, but what to do about it. So our, our panel discussions are very action oriented. Right. Um, and then right. we also have internal, we have a lot of DEI training. So we've done focus groups, we've done panels, uh, seminars, webinars, we do deep training, we have a book club where we read about, you know, books that affect people from diverse perspectives. We have a Zen Den, which is a wellness room. You know, we have our employee resource groups, ERGs, we have six of them that are very active in building a culture of inclusion. Uh, so we've made this our primary focus and that it takes time. This isn't something you just wake up and flip the switch. You have to right. build it and gain, you know, gain inclusion from the leadership. And then you can roll it out to your staff. But I'm very pleased with the progress that we're making. That's great. And so, um, again, we being sort of, um, you know, a company that helps event organizers that might be a little smaller than an NJ pack with, million, you know, multi-million dollar funding. So one thing it seems like that's worked quite a bit is between ERGs, employee research resource groups, uh, community groups, again, leaders in, in the faith community, nonprofits, public sector, what have you. Um, uh, for those that are more independent, what are other things that have sort of helped, um, you know, particularly if, if someone has a smaller budget, what were some of the incentives you gave these groups potentially or individuals or groups? And then what were other things that um, helped, um, you know, bring more people through the doors uh, to buy tickets to various, you know, venues or events that you've worked on? Sure. Well, I think everyone needs to build their awareness of what are the issues that center around racism, systemic racism in particular. So whether your organization has one pe person, five people, 10, 20, that, that needs to still be a focus. So that means that you need to come together and have a shared experience where you can discuss how does this apply to me? So you may say, well, my organization is all white. Great, you need to learn how to be an ally. What does an ally do? Stand with you, speak with you. So how do I develop that awareness? I have to study. There's a plethora of TED Talks, excellent, excellent TED Talks, as well as books and articles. And so self-education, number one. Everyone should do that. That's the baseline. Then you can see what can I build right. internally, you know, which might allow us to have like an equity group. Some organizations, as you said, are really small, so they don't have the ERGs, but they do have equity groups, which could be half of the, the employees they get together and they make sure they discuss what does equity mean? Different from equality, equity is looking at each person individually to see what do you need to thrive. Equality is, I gave everybody the same thing, but that may not work for me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can have so many different ways of putting together discussions, 
you know, and opportunities and then make changes. So then once you start to build this, then you need to share this externally. So for instance, on NJPAT's website, we map out all of our efforts as many, many organizations have on their websites. Broadway League, Ford Foundation, you know, everyone has them. It's important to say that because we're finding that young professionals, that's the number one area that they are looking for when they're choosing a place to work. They want to know, what are you doing to change the landscape? So if it's not mm -hmm. reflective on your landscape and your, on your website, then eh, they may pass, go someplace else. So I think right. any person um, that is in the workforce should look to see what is this organization or company doing? to build a culture of inclusion. How are they building this awareness? What does that look like? It'll be different for everyone, but if there's nothing being done, that's like a budget. It means it doesn't exist. If a line item isn't in your budget, it's not gonna happen. And so right. you wanna really focus on that. You have to, to demand it, I think. Yeah, yeah. There has to be investment. You can say, oh, I wanna do this snap, but if there's no money and time put towards it, right? It's, it's not gonna happen. And how it leads to ticket sales is, is, is really a, a kind of organic because once your staff and your team start to realize the value of diversity, then they want to want to create more opportunities. So your programming starts to reflect that. So it's not just one lane. Now we see more diverse programming because I recognize that if we want to engage, you know, Asian American community, we've got to have something that resonates with them. We don't have to change right. who we are. We expand. We expand. So, you know, right. we have found that that has definitely been an excellent way to build our audiences. And frankly, and I have said this since I wrote my first book, Invitation to the Party, and my second book comes out in August, I will always say it has never been the price of a ticket that prohibits someone from an arts or entertainment experience. It's a question of value. And what we have to do a better job, those of us who are presenting the arts, is to create a sense of value as to why I should make this choice. This is a choice. Do I get the Nike sneakers or the coach bag? Or do I buy a ticket? Which right. one? It's value. And so we right. have this, you know, the arts have presented themselves in such an elitist way, you know, that it's only for a certain group of people and you won't understand it anyway. Well, then fine, yeah, yeah. I'll go see something else that is, you know, much more welcoming to me. So we have to do the work. I don't believe it's the audiences that have to be pushed. I think it's how we present, how we engage. That's on our end. No, right. No, and I, I think that's a great point in that just thinking, <laughs> you know, individual life example. Um, one, an org could say, oh, you won't understand or it's too expensive, but there's right. communities of all types that are spending a lot to see Beyonce to, I would go to a, a nonprofit gala from my, you know, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, the local community's nonprofit gala. That was expensive for someone who's like a teenager, young adult, that was a hundred to $200 ticket. I wasn't scared to pay it because again, I saw the value in going and what I was going to uh, interact with and all of that. So it's, a, it's the same idea if you see orchestra, dance theater, whatever it may be. I'm curious to your feedback on group sales or someone who I did that for a living at some point in my career. Um, and I'm speaking from my vantage point and, and those who I've worked alongside, you know, promoters, event organizers, worked alongside to help there. And a group sales for folks who don't know quickly is 
you know, venues or, or promoters will have some sort of group sales um, strategy. And that's obviously in an attempt to have organizations or individuals buy a group of tickets to the same performance. So it might be 10, 20, 30, 100 tickets to the same. And people will do that for various reasons or want to do it for various reasons. But I know that from what I noticed from doing that work, um, it seemed like um, there was an era just from an economic standpoint where more people tend to work at the same place for a while. You know, there, you know, the, maybe my, my parents' generation where someone worked at the same company for 20, 30 years. And so you had the same people in the apartment, they knew each other and they would have these informal channels say, hey, let's all go to the circus with our family or all go to a ball game or whatever it may be. So you dealt with sort of the same group leader and it was easier to sort of connect whether it was union delegates or HR people or sales leaders, whatever. And mm -hmm. fast forward to today where um, <clears throat> just so many digital choices, you can compare prices and, you know, discounts are not necessarily the driver, right? And then, you know, you might change your job every year. So it's, you're not in the same place and right. it becomes like artificial. Yeah. So how do you see that impacting like how you're, how you're really making group sales work today vis-a-vis -vis that environment? Again, different than the same person in HR was there for a long time and it was an easy relationship to maintain. You know what I mean? No, you bring up an excellent point. I mean, what we're seeing is, of course, is the, the older group leaders who still have their constituency. You know, you have yeah. companies like Celeste Bateman, you know, who's a Newark uh, sales agent, and she has a great company that has had loyal followers for years. So they still look to her to, to put together right. group trips you know, for Broadway and different places. So you still have that, that population. Um, but also, definitely, I think a lot of it's based on age. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, after, you know, 30, 40s, you know, 20, 30s, 40s, they're not interested in when you have to collect the money and we have to agree on a date, that's too much work. So yeah, yeah. what I've, what I've observed, uh, and certainly Broadway, right out of the pandemic, uh, for the black shows that came out, they were themed based and that, uh, that really pushed the needle. So for instance, the Broadway show, Thoughts of a Colored Man. They had a HBCU night. They had a black sorority fraternity night. So right. that meant I don't have to buy a group ticket. I'm just going on this night because all of my friends are going to be there on this night. And then they encourage you to wear your sweaters, you know, get some letters. And, you know, and they had a really great time. I was there for that night. They just had yeah. a blast. And I noticed the same thing at Lincoln Center at the Met for the opera, Fighters Shut Up in My Bones. They had a similar kind of evening. So the theme night, sometimes the theme will be for the culture. That's the theme, for the culture. And that means right. just come because we want to support, you know, what's on stage. So the themes definitely make a difference. And that's when you can see groups really push. There's still the college student groups that come, professors are bringing those. Young professional organizations still, you know, yeah. are interested in that. But I'm seeing these theme nights absolutely the way to go no that makes and sense course, and, then, and the faith-based community too that's yeah is a pretty solid source of a group sales yeah and that was it was funny yeah from from my work as you know there there would be uh christian artists or not you know there would still be a faith-based community that right. would certainly want to connect and hey we're going to organize the bus or i'm going to organize the discount and collect and all of that stuff fundraise for the event they want to attend next year all of that 
the uh, now how much is um has has technology changed some of that work in that is there software or other platforms people use to kind of i was thinking about this the other day if you're a group leader the old school way you would just collect people's money and then you eventually wrote the, the one big check right. to the venue right but like is there are people utilizing technology as a group leader to collect money and then be the group leader so. for your I purchases so. yeah. time, well i see them pre-purchasing but what i have seen is they form facebook groups you know it's a closed group okay. and they'll send the invite to join that group to just their circle and then everybody right. pays by Venmo or zelle or however they want to pay um, for those and i'm finding that the producers presenters organizations are much more flexible to adapt to this way of buying groups as opposed to one person coming to the window with the check it's coming right. in, in in different ways but you know it's it's still sustainable yeah 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 i know that um from my experience too that there will be some promoters that would allow hey instead of you required a group discount let's say one person has to pay the check that hey i don't mind if you the group leader collects a bunch of individual payments slap it into one account and execute right. not in all cases but I, I remember that there was some sort of uh you know chipping away at that old ice you know that old you know mm -hmm. the old concept yeah. was like no unless someone collects and it's one we're not doing it but it seemed like at least uh several years ago to begin it seemed like some of that chipped away is that fair to say where some are a little more hey let's let's help out the group lead a little bit and you know they're mm -hmm. doing the legwork and, and let them you know collect payments a little bit differently um, yes yes i've seen okay. that as well you know and, and in jpac we have a couple of unique models uh, one of them is, you know, there's a school uh, in Inglewood that we work with. Um, it's a music school. So when we do our classical performances, you know, the parents uh, are very excited because we invite their students to perform in the lobby as a prelude to the full uh, performance on the stage. And so they've got about 50 or 60 of their kids performing, uh, you know, 30 minutes of classical music in the lobby. Well, those same parents want to buy tickets because they want to now go see the show. It's like, we're here. Let's go see the show. So that started another way of building groups, you know. Right. And so we established three price points. Uh, so, you know, once a week, the teacher would send us checks from the parents based on the price points. And, yes, there was a little bit of labor, but yeah, it was a well worth it yeah. because this is, we have built a, a very loyal audience result of that and we right. were able to talk to the, the orchestras to see would you allow some of the students to perform one number on stage with you that opened up a whole other world because absolutely grandma cousins everybody's going to come see their child no that's right on the stage that's right with joshua bell i mean they can't wait and so yeah. we were able to even increase the price of the ticket. So part of this is being opportunistic. You really have to see what are the moments, when can I really push, you know, these group sales? And that kind of happened organically, but it set up a model. So we said, okay, for various performances in the lobby, if you want to perform in the lobby of NJPAD, you will need to bring a group of 50 or more. And right. Right. We've done that with uh, liturgical dance groups, with modern dance companies. Uh, so it's just been an, another way of building groups. No, and I think that's so a think great that point. Very flexible. Yeah, and in live events of all kinds, I think that's certainly a, yeah. a, a potential big change from 
let's say decades ago, even sports uh, and other and your side and even sports would say, you know, you, you know, the athletes wouldn't do autographs to some degree or, you know, there would be a separation. But increasingly, there's these sort of spaces where, hey, if you're going to have a large group uh, in sports, it's they could play halftime during the Nets game. If they buy a certain That's amount of right. tickets on the core 510, just yeah. as in the arts, as you mentioned, you might might meet one of the performers afterwards or before or sound check um perform on stage all of these things are a way to sort of get close to the customer if they you know and then you know increase ticket sales that that's certainly an interesting way where if you already have the assets and you just kind of move things around a little bit you might be able to to really increase revenue that way i would think yeah 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 uh, i'm curious too um um how i guess to speak specifically broadway how that's changed from you had alluded that uh particularly post george floyd that in a way, sort of the the content has been revolutionized in that um, Hamilton was the the show people think about in terms of being a game changer. More in contemporary, we could go back a, a long time ago of other ones. Um, but how it seems like, in your view, post George Floyd, but even maybe more recent productions that obviously took off, and how that much has changed. I guess the the content coming out of even even dance oh, theater absolutely. to stage shows. I'm curious, just generally your thought on that uh, space. Absolutely, and that's that's what's exciting is that new stories yeah. are being told. You know, Fat Ham uh, is a great example. That you know, it's a certainly a multicultural perspective on Hamlet um, that was yeah. you know, really humorous, but captured much of the black culture uh, in that play. Um, yeah. You know, there was uh, Ain't No More was another one. You know, so there's there's absolutely is a new um, voice that's writing about black stories, and if you don't write your narrative, someone else will. So mm -hmm. I am very happy that we have these new playwrights that are looking at different aspects of black culture, and not just African American. I was so happy when we had Life of Pi, you know, that there and a monsoon wedding. So we've got you know Indian productions as well, and I went to those right, you know, right. to see. So I think that when we talk about diversity, it's never any one culture; it's everyone you know that has a place to celebrate that. But you have to build the audiences, you know, to support it. Otherwise, it's deemed a failure. So that's the problem right. with commercial productions: is their standard of success is different from nonprofits. Nonprofits actually program knowing that some of the shows aren't going to make budget, but they do it because of a sense of mission. When they right. bring other events in that will sell out to make up the difference so you have a balance. On Broadway, right. if you don't make that, yeah, that yeah. budget, that show closes. And we've seen it, you know, shows that K-pop yeah. close in, you know, five minutes. Right. Those shows right, right. sometimes <laughs> are given a moment to breathe and find their audiences. Yeah. There's such a demand that the audience is going to be there the first day. That's only yeah. if you've done the work. That's only if yeah. the producers have allocated the budget to enable multicultural ad firms and agencies to cultivate the audience. If that doesn't happen, we're not coming because we don't know about it. We don't know right. why we should no, take time to see it. I wonder that's simpler to uh, the concept of people who are movie lovers. They're like, hey, why are we making a sequel of, you know, don't mess with it. Why are we doing three or four or five versions of the same? And it seems like the Broadway version is what they call the jukebox musical. It's like, okay, you get an artist and it's, uh, whether it's Motown's catalog or right. Michael Jackson, these are obvious examples where, 
hey, people know the music. So worst case, you know, it's a jukebox musical. They'll know the, the songs. Whereas, yeah, if, if you're getting a new playwright doing something new, that's a much, mm -hmm. you know, longer trip that's to right. kind of get, you know, audience engaged. Yeah. And that's an excellent point. So how do you manage the expectation? Of course, if yeah. you do a musical on The Temptations, The Supremes, Tina Turner, of course right. we're going to come just for the music, even if the book is horrible. Right, Look, right, right. I'm going because right. I love the songs and I can right. dance and sing along with them. But a brand new story by a brand new playwright, that's a whole different kind of marketing campaign. And I don't think Broadway understands that. I mm, think they yeah. supply the same tools, but it's not. We have to take that playwright out to the community, let people get to know them. We need to do radio interviews. We need to read about them. We need to see them in the grocery store. It has to become familiar. And that's an investment. And that's a line item in the budget, more than $5,000. So right, the same right. way the producers are so happy to say we've got a double truck, you know, two-page color ad in the New York Times, which is over $100,000, why can't we invest that same kind of money in a black radio social media engagement campaign? A hundred thousand, not the five, not the 10, 100. So until that changes, I don't see an explosion of audiences of color because we're still being marginalized in terms of the value of who we are and of what the expectation from the audiences. So that's right. definitely something that has to change. I'm curious too, um, 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 in terms of the Broadway business, um, obviously, the, to use a lack of a better term, the farm system would be these nonprofit theaters that, if they have success there, they might graduate to Broadway. So public theater was an obvious example, Second Street, things like that. Um, and just thinking of like Philadelphia had free, or either still does or had for years something like Freedom Theater, which produced black specific, you know, off Broadway sort of production. So is part of that um, disconnect where the sort of the black legacy institutions are not seen as farm systems, quote unquote, for the Broadway, uh, or or just, you know, tougher to, from a financial standpoint, to keep it going. I'm, I'm just curious uh, if that's an element of it yeah, as well. That's a very interesting question. I'm actually, I work with the Black Seed, uh, and the Black Seed is a, an initiative um, that developed several years ago to okay. fund black theaters around the United States so that they can thrive. So as a facilitator for each of the convenings, one of the things I've heard loud and clear, black theaters aren't looking to develop works to transfer to Broadway. They're developing works to stay in their community, to tell right. stories in their community. So that's not right. necessarily the goal. If it happens, of course, no one's gonna turn the money down, but that's right. not the impetus for it. The impetus is we wanna tell a story that our community will love and celebrate and be a part of. Um, right. So that's one aspect. And then in terms of Broadway producers looking at black theaters to see is there something there that we should bring to Broadway, I think that that's not the majority of producers to look in that direction. You know, so yeah, yeah. it takes a specific kind of producer that has a more global vision to travel around the country and see what's cooking, what are they doing, what are the stories. Um, and that's, I don't think that's the norm at this point. Right, right, right. No, and that, and that makes sense. Where I, I wonder if, again, um, you had mentioned there there may not currently be really a local local theater, the theater um, desire or aspiration mm -hmm. to do that. 
but at the other end on the big end, you know, the Broadway, you know, side of it, they're not necessarily looking to those places to, to cultivate a future show they're going to invest big in, which is interesting. Um, the, um, and I guess the, the, the um, thus you're saying that that's why the big change in uh, investing in black playwrights and, and other folks like that is what's been most impactful. Let's say on the, you know, for-profit Broadway level. Yeah. Because that's yes. where, that's where the changes happen. Let's say. That's right. And again, even that investment, while it's, it's a it's symbolic of a first step, you know, most of those shows close after three months. There's right. none, none of them that have had an extended run. And we know that's the same with white shows as well. But where's the investment that guarantees, no, this show's going to run a minimum of six months because we've raised the money in advance. We're not right, dependent right. on box to keep it open. Right. So I just think the models need to change. It, it's too, it's, that, that doesn't work anymore. We need time. Yeah, it's a little yeah. too short. I, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'm excited about what's coming to Broadway. Soul Train is coming. The Wiz is coming. Curly Victorious. You know, there's a different stories on different black actors. So it's, I think the season, uh, new season is going to be exciting. Okay. No, that's great. I was just going to say, I'd love for you to share what you might be working on regarding your consultancy with, with things that are going to come out uh, soon as well. Well, actually, what I'm excited about right now is Harlem Week. You know, Harlem Week is a 47-year-old uh, festival. Yeah, that we in Harlem on 135th Street, and I'm on the board of Harlem Week, and so I've been able to really see how we've grown and we bring Broadway to Harlem. Uh, we invite the shows, the producers, to come and bring their actors. If it's a musical, they can perform. But we created my, my partner is Irene Gandy, who is a two-time Tony winner uh, and publicist. And Irene and I we created the Broadway Row, where we'll have on uh, 135th Street you know, between uh, 7th and 8th. We have all the Broadway shows there with tables. So people can come up and find out about the show. That's audience development, you know. And then we have TD up there who will say, well, if you join us, you can afford to buy tickets to all these shows, you know. And then we have City Center there. We have the Met, Lincoln Center, all of these different venues. So that's very exciting to me. So that'll be in August, the third week of August, 13th. Oh, okay, great. No, absolutely. That's time honor. That's... Like you mentioned, that's a that's one of the classic pillars of like Harlem, cool stuff to do, culture of the of the neighborhood, no question about it. Uh, it's definitely one of the the legendary events that, that happens each year. Uh, Donna, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'd love for you, if yes. you don't mind, to share where people can find you if they want to learn more about. Um, I like you gave the shout out to the book and books. That's cool. Uh, but yes. from a social media standpoint or website standpoint, love to give you a time to share where people can find you to learn more about what you're doing and 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 uh, what you're doing and now in the future. Sure. Um, my website is walkercommunicationsgroup.com. Uh, and, oh gosh, what's my Facebook handle? I was going to ask, are you, are you active on Facebook or Twitter or anything? You don't have to be. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, absolutely. And Instagram. Okay. You can find me. It's usually at Donna Walker Q. Yeah, I saw um, the, tw the Twitter's DWQ, and I know that. So DWQ yes. on Twitter for someone who's active there. So Donna, this has been a pleasure. Obviously, our conversation presented by OPC Direct. We help event organizers sell tickets easily, get paid instantly, and eliminate junk fees. 
Donna, really a pleasure. Good to see you in virtual, and Thank I hope you. we'll see you in person sooner than later. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. You got it.